Hey, Door of Hope, this is Pip. I'm one of the pastors here, and boy, do we miss you. It's been quite a while since we've met face-to-face, and while we're praying for you and thinking of you, man, it's just not the same as seeing you face-to-face. I know we're all going through this time experiencing hardship in different ways, but we just wanna say we love you. Today, we're gonna have a time of worship. We're gonna start off with uh, some music from Evan. We just pray that that's the time you're able to connect with the Lord. Then Josh is gonna deliver a sermon and I'm actually gonna read the, um, the passage that he's gonna be talking on. It's Romans 5, verse 12 through 21. And then there'll be some more worship afterwards. Now, it is so vital in this time to have community, even if it's virtual community, that is still connecting with other people. And so if you're, if you're watching this and you don't have a community group, we just really encourage you to go on the website and you'll actually see a link on there on the rotator that uh, has, lets you sign up for community groups, uh, both groups that meet in person with social distancing, as well as groups that are meeting digitally. Uh, we need other people and we just encourage you to check that out and also, uh, our emails for the whole staff are on the website and feel free to, to reach out to, to us. Whether we know you or perhaps we haven't actually met in person yet, we care about you, we wanna hear from you. Feel free to let us know how you're doing. Um, but in any case, I'm gonna read the verse right now and then we'll go into some worship. Romans 5, verse 12 through 21. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all man because all sinned, For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin, For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if, because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Lord, just for everybody listening or watching right now, I just pray that you would speak to them and minister to their hearts through the music, through the message, Lord, and most importantly, through your word and your spirit. Lord, I thank you that we are one body. Even when we are not physically meeting, we are still one body in you. In Jesus' name I pray this, amen.
my vision, be my hope, be my song, Jesus. Jesus, be my vision, be my hope, be my song, Jesus. And be the fire in my heart. Be the wind in these sails, be the reason that I live, Jesus, Jesus. And be the fire in my heart, be the wind in these sails, be the reason that I live, Jesus. Well, hello, Door of Hope. Uh, it is good to be with you this morning. I'm actually in Cannon Beach, uh, Oregon right now, speaking at the Cannon Beach Conference Center. Uh, tonight is my final night here before I head home. I will say it has been refreshing to speak to real people in a room, uh, even though they have to wear masks. And I'm actually in the sanctuary where a lot of the the heroes of my faith uh, have preached, so it's pretty cool uh, to be here. This is my third year in a row. Uh, well, today we're going to be jumping right back into the book of Romans, and we're going to be looking at what I consider a pretty complex or theologically dense passage, and that's Romans chapter 5, verses 12 through 21. And this passage really defines for us uh, what is often referred to as the, as the theory of recapitulation in regards to atonement. Now, if I was to define that word, recapitulation, it literally means uh, an act or an instant of summarizing and restating the main points of something. And so when we talk about the view of atonement as recapitulation, uh, what we are saying is that Christ is seen as the new Adam who succeeds where Adam failed, that Christ undoes the wrong that Adam did, and because of his union with humanity, leads humankind on to eternal life. This is the concept that I often bring to you when I say that Jesus is the one for the many and the many and the one. It speaks of having representative headship, that the first Adam was the first representative man. His very name means humanity. And kind of think of it as a family tree, that we are all a part of this reality that begins with this chosen or elected representative that as Irenaeus, who really is the church father who developed the theory of recapitulation, said this around Jesus being 
the new representative. Uh, it says, not despising or evading any condition of humanity, he came to save all through means of himself. All, I say, who through him are born again to God. He therefore passed through every age, becoming an infant for infants, thus sanctifying infants, a child for children, thus sanctifying those who are of this age. So likewise, he was also an old man for old men, that he might be a perfect master for all. Then at last he came even to death itself, that he might be the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might have the preeminence, the prince of life, existing before all and going before all. What Irenaeus believed is that the Christ is actually the mold from which the first representative man, Adam, was made, and that Christ comes into the world taking on the frailty of the human race to actually put right, this is that concept of recapitulation, where the first Adam went wrong. So Irenaeus viewed, if I could borrow from Joshua McNow in his brilliant book, uh, The Mosaic of Atonement, one that I highly recommend. I think it's an incredible uh, uh, deep dive into uh, understanding the reality of the cross more fully. He says this, he says, Irenaeus viewed Jesus as reliving the entire human story on behalf of his people. At each stage and under all conditions of human experience, Jesus is obedient and victorious. At every point, his holiness spills over, sanctifying those of this age. That's why Irenaeus said he became a baby, and in doing so, he sanctified what it means to be a baby, a child, an adult, an elderly person. He sanctifies the human experience. And so he says, the reason that Christ's righteous acts may stand in for ours involves his identity, and I love this, as the archetype of the entire human race, existing before all and going before all. Now, when we talk about sin entering the world through the first Adam, there are some that may have the question, can we believe the authority of Scripture, and should we believe in a historic Adam? This is a debate that is going on amongst academic minds and something that I think Joshua McNall digs into very well because there is a lot of science right now that is pushing against the concept of, of the idea that humanity began with one man. And what liberal theologians have done to try to reconcile the Bible with science is they've tried to eradicate the historic Adam and basically place it into the realm of purely parable or metaphor. But you cannot eradicate the historical Adam without actually impacting our understanding um, or actually doing great damage to our understanding of atonement itself. Uh, Jesus and Paul speak of Adam as a person. But what we can say is that Adam, his very name, as Tim Mackey used to remind me again and again, Adam's name does mean humanity. So what's important 
I think, is that we don't need to get into the weeds of whether or not he was the first humanoid. <laughs> what we do need to recognize is that however God created the heavens and the earth, and there is mystery around the details of that, we can say with certainty that God chose this person to be his image bearer. That is to be his representative. And through that representative is where we find the dilemma that we find ourselves in right now. Just so you know, I am less interested in the nuances of these arguments. I believe the scripture to be true. I think it's dangerous for us to have an anti-intellectual approach to scripture uh, and just to toss out every scientific discovery as some sort of ploy against the faith. Uh, I don't think we can bury our heads in the sand, but I also think that we don't need to get lost in the details. The important thing is actually understanding the concept of headship or representation. And this is what holds together our view of what atonement is all about. Remember, the Genesis account is not a scientific document. Uh, it is not trying to give us science. What it's trying to give us is a cosmology that develops the idea, the, the truth that God is the true creator God and that nothing exists apart from him cre uh, creating it. And so I think that here what we find is that we have to hold tenaciously to the historic reality of the first representative man because it is important for us uh, when it comes to our right understanding of the gospel. And so it says in verses 12 through 14, and this is Paul building on the incredible reality of grace that we have been looking at. Five is one of those beautiful chapters that develops the outcome of our justification. And now he goes on to show us these two realities, these two, these two groups, those that remain as a part of that first humanity and those that find themselves redeemed by that second man, the, the one who is the firstborn over all creation, who truly lives the life that our first father could not live, setting right what had gone horribly wrong. And he says in verses 12 through 14, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sin, for sin indeed was in the world before the law was given. But sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. So what do we see? Sin enters the world through this one man. And when I use the word man or humanity, I am speaking of divine image bearers. Specifically, God chose to breathe his life into this man, and there became a unique reality. Humanity is birth, the divine image bearers. And, and you remember, God was in perfect relationship with Adam and Eve, but 
something horrible happen. And it's interesting that, that the blame is placed upon Adam, not Eve. Why? Because once again, it's the concept of the one for the many, because he is the representative head. He is the one who represents the human race. And so we're told that in, in, in that powerful depiction of the fall, that the serpent, which we're not given an explanation of where the serpent even came from, all we know is he is in the garden and he is persuading our first parents to actually rebel against God's sovereign rule, which is the essence of sin. The allurement to take into their hands their own lives, to define for themselves what is right and what is wrong. And the moment they eat of the fruit that was forbidden, it's not that there was magic so much in the fruit, but it was the moment they decided to define for themselves what is right and what is wrong that death entered into the human story, that sin entered the world through one man. And that speaks to that family tree, that representative man, all of humanity, all of creation now groans from the impact of that decision. And so, so it is that all human beings um, are plagued with this reality that we call sin. Now, it's, it's not saying uh, that this is necessarily a genetic disposition, but what it is saying is that this disposition towards sin has permeated all that is. And it has created an impotence in our ability to reach God. Uh, this is the essence of sin, is that sin not only blinds us to the reality of what we were created for, it also, it also creates an impossibility for us to be what it is that we were called to be. And it brings ultimately death rather than the very thing that Jesus comes to bring, which is life and life abundantly. So first, sin enters the world through one man. Secondly, death then entered the world through sin. And thirdly, in the way death came to all men, because all have sinned. So all of humanity finds itself culpable before God uh, because of this representative man's failure the door is open like a Pandora's box, and this thing has entered into human history, plaguing us, bringing with it the, the wars, the violence, the sexual sin, the, the continual deconstruction of what it means to be human. This is why we look around at the world that we live in, and we continue to find ourselves confronted with the impacts of this door that was open through our first parents' rebellion. Inheriting Adam's nature, uh, following Adam's example, and recapitulating Adam's story, uh, we can't deny these truths. And this is what Paul meant by writing, because all have sinned. It doesn't mean, when David says, you know, in my mother's womb, 
you know, I was sinning. It doesn't mean that he was committing sins. It means that there is a disposition left to its own devices will act upon that reality. There is a brokenness that has impacted every arena of human existence. That's what we mean by total depravity. It's not that everything you do is bad. It just means that every good thing you do is still ultimately mixture. When Paul says all sinned in and through Adam, therefore all died, although it's theologically difficult, it's surely exegetically correct. And this is the reality is that Adam is the representative or the federal head of the human race. And we cannot deny that reality without doing damage to our understanding of atonement. This is the entrance of sin, and through the entrance of sin, the spread of death. And this is why the gospel is such good news, because look what we go on to find in verses 15 through 19 the victorious obedience, uh, and the cosmic failure as the two representative humans now are contrasted, the first man and now the second man. But he says the free gift is not like the trespass. What is the free gift? It is God's one-way love, his grace, his movement toward us through his son. He, says, he goes on to say, for if many died through the one man's trespass, that trespass opened up the door to death, and death has continued to be the plague of human existence, for the death rate still continues to be one per person. It says, how much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many? So notice there, there is a victorious obedience that comes through Jesus' obedient life. And what does God do? Once again, God is not responsible for human suffering, but he has entered into that suffering and he has woven it into his redemptive purposes. He has taken the ugliest reality, which is sin. He who knew no sin became sin that we might become the righteousness of God. He takes the very thing that is the great enemy of life, death, and through death actually brings about the possibility of eternal life. The radical reality of grace. Through grace, God's love pursuing sinners in their sin. Through this one man, Jesus Christ, that grace abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin, for the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. Through Adam's failure, you have now an entire world that lies under the condemnation that we see from sin. And that condemnation is, is a separation from the God who created us for himself. There is a relational rift, and that relational rift between the author of life, the natural outcome is death. And what does it say? For the judgment following the one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses, what? Brought justification. For if because of the one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive the abundance of grace 
and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Now, this is one of those passages that can often be utilized to uh, defend the doctrine of universalism. That is, that, that all will be saved in Jesus. I think that that fights against the passages that speak of the wrath of God that is coming. I think of passages like we find in, in 2 Thessalonians that says that, that those who continue to live in disobedience that reject the gospel uh, will be separated for all of eternity uh, from God. That's not, that's not a, a, a physical distance statement. It's an ontological statement, which is to reject the salvation that has been made possible in Jesus or actual in Jesus is to leave you with no possibility. To choose the impossible, impossible possibility is to say no to God's yes. And so this passage isn't saying that all will be saved. What this passage is saying is that atonement is not limited to the elect, but that the death of Jesus, I hold tenaciously to this, even though I have many brothers and sisters who sit within a particular framework of, of theology that says that Jesus only died for the elect. Uh, I personally reject that. There are just simply too many passages that speak to the universal implications of Jesus's atonement. That does not believe that, that does not mean that I believe that all will be saved. What a what I do believe it means is that Jesus's work on the cross had a universal implication in the reversal of our, the first Adam's failure. Joshua McNow once again says, the victorious obedience of Christ is contrasted with the failure of Adam. Thus God recapitulated in himself the ancient formation of man that he might kill sin, deprive death of its power, and vivify the human being. In all of this, salvation is spoken of in the context of Jesus reliving and recapitulating the human story on our behalf. What a powerful picture that Jesus relives the human story where the story of the first Adam is that of failure and destruction, while the story of the second Adam is victory. It is the difference between the victorious obedience that came through the perfect life of Jesus. That's why I always say his life qualified him for the death that he died and the death that he died qualifies us for the life that he lived because we know that death was not the end of the story. When Jesus said, it is finished, he did not mean that it is over. He meant that the work has been completed. He has recapitulated Adam's story. He has relived that life with full victory. And so for him to say it is finished means that sin 
death, and the dominions of darkness has all been dealt with so that now those who say yes to his yes can find a new life by which we can live our life. We live in the hope of the gospel. So even suffering, which there is a lot of suffering right now, there is a lot of isolation, we can say, and we need to be able to say, friends, in this time where the world, I believe, is going to be looking to the church more and more to see if it actually has anything to say to those that are hurting. Do we say, though I am alone, I'm not really alone because Christ is with me. Because the life I now live, I live by faith in the Son of Man in whom I have believed. For it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Jesus says, and lo, I am with you always to the end of the age. Listen, the recapitulation of Jesus, his ability to relive the human experience without failure is what gives you and I the ability to endure the struggles of existence right now because we know that in Jesus, that is the place where real victory is found, where real peace and where life and life abundantly is found, where God is able to take the dissonant notes of our existence and continue to weave it into his redemptive purposes. Even more than that, utilizing us as the very vehicles of that reconciliation, for we are called to be ambassadors of reconciliation. That is representatives of this incredible story of God's redemptive work, allowing the Holy Spirit to convict and convince the world through us as we live in total surrender to the one who victoriously lived the life that we could never live and died the death that we deserved so that we could live in the fullness of his life now until he comes back to set right what is wrong in the world. And so we have to understand that God has always dealt with mankind through a head or a representative. The whole story of the human race can be summed up in terms of what has happened because of Adam and what has happened and will yet happen because of Christ. And this is why he closes in verses 20 and 21, showing us where sin increasing now becomes a revelation of grace abounding. Sin increasing and grace abounding. Listen to what he says. Now the law came in to increase the trespass. The very law of God became a litmus test. Remember I said the law of God cannot save us. It's like a plumb line from heaven. All it can do is show us how bent we are. It shows, it shows that the wall is not straight. And he says the law comes in to increase the trespass, to become a revealer of the fundamental problem that we are lost without God's intervention. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. And what was the cross of Calvary itself? Was it not the culmination of human depravity revealing itself in all of its ugliness? The more Jesus revealed the beauty of who he was, the more it drew out the very dross of the human heart. We're not even his own followers 
could stand with him or by him or for him. He was left alone because only Jesus could endure the sinful manifestation of a, of a broken world on the cross of Calvary where he was left alone in darkness to complete the redemptive purposes of God. And I think that, that this is a picture that we have for it says where sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So the law came to increase trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. This is why the law kills, but the gospel brings life. The law is not bad, it's good, it's perfect, but we are incapable of keeping it. And that's why Jesus said, I didn't come to destroy the law, I came to fulfill the law. And this is why Romans will go on to say that Jesus himself is the end of the law. Because the law that we live by now is the law of grace. Is grace the thing that marks you right now? Because I think it's interesting that when we read these passages, we see that we are living by a completely different law than the law of the land. And yet Christians right now are succumbing to the vitriol that is becoming so normative in public discourse right now. Christians raging against one another, arguing over the things of this world Instead of functioning as conduits of grace, we have become like the world in our bitterness, in our anger. We are commanded in Scripture to not let the sun go down on our anger and give a foothold to the devil. But I would argue that too many of us are letting sin increase rather than grace abound. And I just want to encourage you, we do not need to be controlled by the representation that we have in the first Adam. For it says that if anyone be in Christ Jesus, the old has gone and the new has come. You know, I remember what it's like, and maybe you've been a Christian your whole life and it's hard for you to recognize uh, what it is that you have been saved from. But I remember what it's like to move from death to life. I remember the radical change in my spirit, what it meant to truly be born again. Because I think too often we use as an excuse for our behavior where we continue to function as if we're still under the headship of the first Adam, letting sin in, which leads to death. And that's the thing. When we allow sin to, to reign in our lives, the outcome, the wages of sin is death. There's no place for it in our lives any longer. We must live by a different law, the law of grace. And, and, and I want you to live in the power of the Holy Spirit. And the power of the Holy Spirit is a continual revealer of what we are apart from Jesus, which keeps us humble, it is the kindness of God that leads us to repentance, that we are lost without him, that we are sinners, which is that have been saved, which is why we can say that we are saints. It's not about moral perfection, it's about total surrender. 
And so Paul is trying to bring us to this place that's conduits of mercy and peace and love as conduits of grace, maintaining faith for the faithless, maintaining love for the unlovable, maintaining hope for the hopeless. When you watch the news, are you angry at this side or that side? Are you, are you fed up with the battles that you have engaged in? Have you picked your camp and have drawn a line in the sand? Listen, we are called to be a people that love one another. And there are plenty of views that irritate me to no end. But what I have to remind myself of again and again is that I am no longer controlled or represented by the first Adam. I am under the control of the new and final Adam, really the very one who was the mold for the first Adam, and that is Jesus Christ, the firstborn over the new creation. Are we representing his kingdom or our own? Are we allowing the kingdoms of this world to dictate our response and reactions day by day? Or are we allowing the Holy Spirit to define us into an image-bearing reality where we look more and more like the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, not because of our effort, but because of our surrender. That is a faith that works. And that is what it means to have grace reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Man, recapitulation is a beautiful thing when we realize that it speaks of Jesus's ability to live the perfect life that we could not live, that qualified him for the death that he died, which qualifies us today for the life that he lived, for death could not keep him, for Jesus on the cross conquered sin, the dominions of darkness, and death itself. Death, where is your sting? There is no sting. There is only hope and grace and the salvation that belongs to Jesus alone that we are called to be vehicles of to a lost world. I love you guys. I hope you have a wonderful day. I can't wait to be with you all again face to face. Hold on to Jesus in this time. Allow him to take the difficulties of these days and to utilize it to continue to shape you into the men, the women, that he intends you to be in himself. Until next time, this is Josh. Much love. All right, we're in New York. Okay, here we go. Glory plus the computer. <laughs> Jesus, take me to the deeper well 
All my burdens at your feet, you are my 